Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And we're going to study that now. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand. Lord, I know as I prepared this message, I thought of so many people I know that need to hear it. And um, as Dad already said, Lord, we do pray that you would help people, uh, help us to know who to share with, help us to know who to invite, help us to know, help us to care enough to um, encourage people to hear the word. We want to say thank you, too, for all the thousands, even millions of people that have met around the world today and even here in our community, people that love you, that want to know you, and I pray that you would encourage them and encourage each of those communities of Christ. And I pray that you would bless your church in Northern Virginia. I pray you'd bless your church in the D.C. metro area and even across this nation and bring revival, Lord. Use us even here to unify those churches. Use us to, Father, as you said, go out into the highways and in byways and invite people to the feast of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. As you all know, we got back from Costa Rica and they say Pura Vida constantly. Pura Vida. They say it at the beginning of a sentence. They say it at the end of a sentence. They say it when they say hello. Hola, Jordan. He doesn't speak Spanish. Um. <laughs> Pura Vida. Pura Vida. <laughs> We were just arguing about who's more Puerto Rican. Um, Pura Vida means the pure life, the good life. My friend Jan in there, um, I asked him what it meant to him, and he said he thinks it's the summation of everything that's good about life. That's what you're wishing when you say Pura Vida. And we all want the good life. What does the good life mean to you? Seriously, think about it. What does the good life mean to you? Sometimes I think about toes in the sand, gentle, salty ocean breezes, right, Chase? Maybe a tropical drink in your hand, the one with a little umbrella on it. A, a cabana boy, maybe, wait, that's kind of weird, but you get what I'm saying. The good life. Maybe it's time off work. Maybe it's not going to school. Maybe it's summer. What's the good life? And when you start living your life, I think all of us live with this underlying idea that we want the good life. The problem is there's a lot of messages that tell us what the good life is and how to get it. If you go to the state of Nebraska, Eli, there's a highway sign there that says, the good life. Right? The good life. Evidently, all you have to do is move to Nebraska to experience the good life. Now, I've driven through Nebraska, I've never lived there, and I'm sure there's very well-meaning people in Nebraska, but I just always thought there would be more to the good life than cheap housing and endless planes, you know? The good life. So who's right? Who's got the message of the good life? And we need hope for the good life, because the second you lose that hope that you might have the good life, what do we call that? Yeah, despair. Hope for the good life is what gets you up on a rainy morning and helps you do a job. The same task can either be miserable or full of anticipation based on whether or not you think it gets you closer to the good life. 
Hope for the good life is what helps us work through problems in relationships. Hope for the good life is what keeps us going. Jesus cared about the good life. In John 10.10, he said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it, what? Abundantly. Abundantly. Have you ever wondered why Jesus talked so much about life? In 1 John 1, Jesus says, or, or the Bible teaches, that Jesus was with God when? At the creation of the world. So Jesus is the author of life. One day I know Eli and Noah are going to invent something amazing. It'll probably be like a transporter device. And once they do that, they ought to know how that device works. Now, knowing them, it could be sheer accident, and they'll have no idea how to replicate it. But ideally, if you invent something, you should know how it works. If you invent an engine, you ought to know when that engine is running properly. If Jesus invented life as the Bible supposes, he ought to know when we have the good life. And, you know, I don't want to be too formal here, but I do want to be serious. Because this is serious stuff. This is how we build our lives. And what I'm trying to say is that when we come to follow Jesus, we're not just buying into rules and regulations and going somewhere on Sunday. And that's kind of what Iona is all about. You know, I got in trouble for showing my tattoo this morning, but another guy had a tattoo on this forearm, so I thought I was safe. But they used the New King James Version only there. So I was a little wrong. No, it's fine. So this tattoo to me is a reminder that Christ is the center of life. The Celtics made their crosses with the cross interwoven to remind them that Christ is interwoven in all of life. He must be. I told you about the Whole Foods magazine rack that had Buddhism as a way of living and thinking and being, but no Christianity. Because we live in a society, and if we're not careful, we ourselves buy into it without knowing it. We live in a society that doesn't think Jesus has anything actually to say about how you should live your life, what you should say, what you should do, how you ought to think, how do you run your business, all of these things. But he does. He's the author of it all. And this is the premise that I'm giving to you. To become a disciple of Jesus is to become an apprentice to the author of life. To become a disciple of Jesus is to become an apprentice to the author of life. And nobody can give anybody the good life like Jesus can. So how do you become a disciple of Jesus? How do you enter into the good life that he promises? Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. That's Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. And these three principles that Jesus teaches are mandatory for anyone who wants to enter into discipleship with him, which means the good life as he defines it. Uh, let's start with verse 25. Jordan, will you read verse 25, please? Uh, 25 and 26, please. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Thank you. Chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. Jesus is teaching that first up point, first point, the good life requires, what do you think it is? The good life requires sacrifice. The good life requires sacrifice. Now, if we're looking at those verses, 25 and 26, does anybody find those words to be strong? I do. They're crazy. They're crazy strong, like almost ludicrous strong, so much so that we're tempted to sort of just gloss over it. I mean, does Jesus really expect us to hate our children, our mothers, our brothers? We know he's not saying that. Why? Because elsewhere, 1 Timothy 5.8, for example, it says that people that don't provide for their families, especially members of their own household, are worse than an unbeliever. We also know that says, Jesus said this, that the world will know that we're his disciples if we have love for one another. So whatever he's saying here, he's not saying that we ought to actually hate these people. So what is he saying? Jesus is teaching that in comparison to our love for God, all other loves must fade away. In comparison to our love for God, all other loves must fade away. Can you think of a story in the Bible that talks about that, Eli? What's a story in the Bible where the same principle is being applied to a person? Do you remember the story of the man who walked up a mountain with his son, a little boy maybe older than Gabriel, and with him he had a knife and he had fire, and the little boy said, Daddy, where is the sacrifice? And what did he say? God will provide. Now we know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends, but it's unimaginable to be Abraham. He doesn't know how it's going to end. And it's only until he's about to plunge the knife down into the flesh of his son that God stops his hand and says what? Okay, now I know that there's no love that you have it's open. There's no love that you have that's greater than your love for me. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that we cannot have a love that's greater than our love for him. This is something that, um, that might strike us as cruel, but I believe that the secret to loving is being free in our love. Friends, you know this is true, right? If I love Javen more than I love God, what happens? Javen, exactly, it can become an idol. And without even meaning to, I then allow Javen to control me, to manipulate me, to, I can't, I can't discipline him because my love for him kind of crowds out all other wisdom and emotion. And it's only when I love God fully and completely that he frees me to love other people. That is so important. It's one that I struggled with in my life. Learning to release my love for my children, my wife, my family. And saying, Lord, I cannot love them more than I love you. And I will trust you as I love you to teach me how to love them in a way that they need to. This one trips up a lot of families in this area, a lot of families, because they work so hard and they care so much about the well-being of their children, but in the process, they allow that to become, as Eli said, 
an idol, and it wrecks their relationships. It's not how God intended it. The good love will also require other kinds of sacrifice. What else does he say in verse 27? Eli, will you read verse 27? So who thinks they know what that means? What does it mean to carry our own cross? Bear your own weight. Bear your own weight? What else? Is Jesus talking about a literal cross here? At the time, I think it was a common saying. Is everybody who was crucified would have to carry their cross. Okay. To the place of their execution. Okay. So that, regardless of what it means, it, was, it would be very common to the people at the time to hear something like that. That could be. Anybody else? So here's what I want to propose it means. So yeah. Yeah. Not Jesus, but so these are two things we do know. What was the cross to Jesus? The cross was both his calling. He came to die on a cross for our sins. That was his ultimate life mission, whatever other ones he had. We can certainly agree that was his ultimate life mission, his calling. We know that he didn't even want this calling all the time. Because when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So his calling, his purpose, do you know what your purpose is? Do you understand what your calling is? And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must be willing, as I obeyed the Father, to obey my calling on your life, my purpose for your life. Friends, it's so important to realize Jesus isn't kind of making things vague here. These are clear scriptures. What does it mean for us as a disciple of Christ to bear our cross? Now, there's some callings that are confusing. I've been on a journey for starting a church for about 10 years now. And some callings, you need a spiritual mentor, lots of prayer, and coffee conversations to kind of work those things out. But other ones are not so complicated. They're not complicated. But we struggle with them just as much. For example, what's one purpose that God, that Jesus made very clear? He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is a broad statement that Jesus makes to his disciples. And I guess I would ask each of us, how's that going? How are we doing? Am I fulfilling, am I carrying that cross that Jesus tells me to carry? That is part of my mission, my calling. And I'll tell you, it's often easier to kind of get up, caught up in some of the intricacies of what my unique calling is while neglecting the very obvious things that God has called me to do in Christ. But that's my cross. Another one is love one another. Love one another. We all have been in church for a while. This is a big deal. We can barely like each other sometimes, much less love one another. And yet Jesus is saying, if you will come after me, you must bear your cross. As I walked up the hill of Golgotha and carried my cross, this is part of your calling, your mission in life. The second thing, other than purpose, 
is that the cross also represented what? And this is kind of obvious. Pain. Pain, exactly. Suffering. Jesus said, if I, the master, suffered, you shouldn't be surprised if you have to suffer as well. Now, we live in a pretty comfortable area of the world to live in. And maybe even if we didn't live here, we feel the same way. But I don't know about you guys, but every time I experience unkindness, hardship, inconvenience, things of discomfort, I get, gone it? What's going on here? Why is this happening to me? Why? And Jesus is saying at that moment in time to me, follow me. Take up your cross. I did. I was willing to suffer. I'm asking you to suffer as well. And here, it's just so important to make clear, the willingness to suffer is not only an expectation of following Christ, he's saying it's a prerequisite. It's a qualification of being a disciple of Jesus. So what is my mission? And what is my cross that Jesus asked me to carry? Maybe you're feeling a little overwhelmed. I know when I got to this point of the message, I was a little overwhelmed. I'm not making this stuff up, though. It's right there. And you might be wondering, if this is what the good life is, can I have my coffee and go, please? Right? I don't want this. And Jesus agrees with us. Remember Matthew 7, 14? What does he say? For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus was eyes wide open about this fact. Discipleship with him was not for everybody. There would be many people who would start the journey, but not many who would finish. But consider this. All right, Eli, Noah, what if I told you guys that becoming a great athlete in the NFL one day required intense practice, Rigorous, rigorous training, total dedication, you're going to have to sweat, you're going to have to get out there on a summer training camp on a hot day, you're going to have so much physical exertion, you'll probably throw up at some point, you're going to want to throw up at some point if you don't, nobody's going to pay you to do this for like 10 years, there's a good chance you'll have a baby crying while you work out, no, there's a good chance you might break a bone, right? There's a good chance that, what else could happen when you're practicing for the NFL? It's like you get old. Maybe, probably not, but it's possible. But would it be mean to tell you that? Especially if you're like getting ready to play freshman football? Would that be mean? It would be honest, right? So playing in the NFL is something that's hard. But do many people want to do it? Yes. Things that are worth doing are hard. Things that are worth doing are often hard. And so the greatest accomplishment, the greatest hope we could ever have, which is to enter the kingdom of God, to experience the good life, we should not be at all surprised that it comes with very high standards. We should not be surprised by that. 
What if Javen came to me and said, Dad, I want to be a great baseball player one day. Okay? I want to be an awesome baseball player. And I said, well, Javen, this is how you become a great baseball player. Ready? You watch a lot of baseball games. You buy yourself a nice baseball jersey. You collect baseball cards. And if you can, go to an actual baseball game every once in a while. And if you do that, you'll be awesome as a baseball player. You'll definitely make it into the major leagues. Would that be mean? Yeah, why? Because it's not the truth. So here, I really believe what Jesus is telling us is the truth. When he says the good life requires sacrifice, he's telling us the truth. All right, so let's consider the next requirement for the good life. It's verses 28 through 33. Wendy, will you read that for us, please? Yeah. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in the war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Mom, if you'll start in verse 32 and go to 33. And if not, all the other is yet a great way off. He sent a delegation and asked for terms of peace. So these verses teach us that the good life requires, what do you think? Total commitment. The good life requires total commitment. There's a theologian named Daryl Bach, and he says, Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to commitment. It is not how little one can give that is the question but how much God deserves. And yet we often commit so little to God. We do. We commit very little, but we expect big results. Like, I don't know about you guys, but there's times when I get in like a five-minute devotional studying the Bible, and I'm like, woo, I'm a super Christian, you know? Or I'll pray for five minutes throughout the day, like focused prayer. I don't mean like praying for my food. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really getting it done. I'm an awesome Christian guy. You know, like I have little, little angel wings on my feet or something like that. Right? But Jesus is not a minimalist at all. And, and I really think that some of these things, because he made the world, this is how the world works. So he's not saying something insane. God's not like this narcissistic being. He's not. Because apply that minimalist idea to any other area of life that you care about. Jordan, let's say you tried to be minimalist with your wife. How would that go? Gave her the bare minimum attention, the bare minimum focus, the bare minimum time. Not so good. Parenting, try that with your kids. The bare minimum, it's not going to go well. It's not. How about your job? Tracy, give your boss the bare minimum required. Should you expect a promotion, a raise? No. So why do you think, or why do we think, that Jesus would require any less? Any less. So he's telling us that his life, the good life, 
requires our maximum commitment, our maximum dedication. And I believe he's being perfectly reasonable. G.K. Chesterton said famously, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's like I decided to go ahead and try the mommy diet last week. And I got, I didn't really. But it's like I did two hours worth, right? And then I didn't like it. It didn't work. I couldn't eat pizza or ice cream or whatever it is that I couldn't eat. And I'm like, oh, this is a dumb diet. You know, it doesn't work. And then when I talk to Brianna, I don't even know if this is still the case, but I'm like, oh, that's a dumb, I know all about that diet. It's, it's dumb. It's pseudoscience diet. But people do that with Christianity all the time. All the time. Oh, yeah, I went to church for a couple months. It doesn't work. It's not real. I prayed. How much did you pray? Oh, you know, a lot. How much? For three, four, five minutes at least? Jesus is not a minimalist. Following him, the good life requires total commitment. When I was learning to play soccer, I started when I was a freshman in high school. I thought because I'd lived in a soccer-playing country, Portugal, that I sort of would have absorbed soccer skills. And plus, I probably was of the temperament that I thought I could do anything, which wasn't true. Because the first freshman year, I was like the worst player on the team. My dad, he was well-intentioned, but he set me up because he gave me his old soccer cleats, but they were football cleats. And everybody made fun of me, but I thought they were awesome because they were real leather cleats from football, you know? How old would those cleats have been? I, anyways, I wore them out to my first practice. I thought I was the stuff. <laughs> like, you have like, because a football cleat isn't even made the same way as a soccer cleat. It's got that one cleat there in the middle, you know? So I didn't want to be the last anymore. I didn't want to be the last one on the bench. I didn't only want to play when like we were up by 10, which is impossible in soccer. So I practiced all that summer. I mean, I laced up my shoes all the time and then get out there in the hot summer heat all the time. I got a little better by that fall. Next summer, I did it again. I practiced and practiced. I used to juggle in my room, practice just doing this, keeping the ball up. And I got better. Eventually, I got to be captain. But I wanted the good soccer life. That's what I wanted. But it took my total commitment, and I wasn't surprised by it. Do you want the good life in Christ? I do. I do. I believe he has the good life. But it will require our total commitment. I'm not making that stuff up. We see it right here. And I believe Jesus is being perfectly reasonable when he says that. This is the last point, and I'll go through it quickly. And it's um, in verse 34. Let's see, who hasn't read yet that would like to? Mr. Henricus, will you read? Are you ready to read? Verse 34. Yes. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? Continue? Yeah, to 35, please. It is of no value for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. The one who has ears to hear had better listen. 
So when I first read these words, I'll admit I was totally confused, right? I'm a big believer that the text should make the points. And so I came to this salty thing and I was like, holy smokes, what does unsalty salt have to do with following Jesus, with being his disciple? And at first I kind of made up something I thought it meant. But then I noticed Jesus presented his words. He said, um, if you have ears to hear, let him hear, which is kind of him saying, you're going to have to think about this one. So let me hear, I prayed. And uh, I thought about it. And I asked myself the question, how do you put saltiness back into salt? And, and from what I found out in uh, chemistry, you can't. NaCl is evidently one of the most stable compounds in the universe. Like, it is practically impossible to break it apart. You don't take the saltiness out of salt. It doesn't happen. It's not like you can wear out salt. It just doesn't, it doesn't do it. However, the salt around the Dead Sea where Jesus lived wasn't pure NaCl. It came from mines. And so you would get this white clump out of the mines. But it had NaCl, but it also was mixed in with a lot of other compounds. Lots of compounds. And of those compounds, salt is the most susceptible to dissolving in water. So if you put that salt which wasn't pure salt or sodium chloride, if you put it in a moist area, the salt, the NaCl, will be the first thing to dissolve, and what you're left with is an unsalty, non-preserving mass. And there's a, um, a missionary to that area who kind of gave a live first-hand report of lots of salt that was sold to the government and moved into these houses and kept there over months and it was exposed to moisture, and it lost all its saltiness, and so it was thrown out. So I think Jesus is teaching two principles here. Two principles. One principle I think Jesus is teaching is this. There are many people who call himself his disciples who are mixed in with those who are, but they're not. They're not. And when those people are exposed to the living water, which is Christ, they will be revealed for who they are. And Jesus himself says this, that on the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a scary thing. You know, it's a scary thing, but it's also a helpful thing in the sense that we're often in places, even many churches, where people claim the name of Christ, they wear the brand, they talk about it, they make a big deal out of it, but when you get close to them, you just say, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but it doesn't look like discipleship. It doesn't look like sacrifice. It doesn't look like total commitment. And I think that should be something that's sobering for us, but also something that we can live with eyes wide open about. The second thing that I think Jesus is teaching is actually very encouraging. Very encouraging, especially after what we just read. The encouraging part is this. You can't lose your saltiness. You can't. If you're a child of God, if you've been born into his family, if you've been born again, you don't go back. I remember hearing someone once tell me about toast. I think it was my high school science teacher. And he talked about how when you take bread and you put it in an oven and it becomes toast, you can't undo that chemical reaction. You can't make toast, now bread. 
It just doesn't work. A chemical change has happened. You can't be made unsalty again. And that is so encouraging, right? Because Jesus sets a very high standard for us. And that's why the third point is that the good life requires a miracle. The good life requires a miracle. Only Jesus can work that change in our lives. And at the same time, only Jesus can make a life that is fully focused on Him to be one that is free from narcissism, insecurity, uncertainty. Because Jesus is the only religion that I know of that both says, be completely moral, total sacrifice, total commitment, and at the very same second says, I will give you the power and the strength to live that out. There's two big philosophical thoughts, and I won't go into it now, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. One is Aristotle's. And Aristotle was big on asceticism, self-will, promoting the self, focusing on growing yourself, all of these different things. A guy came along named Nietzsche and said, that's not true. That way of life just kills the individual. It kills self. And Aristotle himself would have said, you sacrifice self for the larger self, right? So Nietzsche is saying, no, you should not do that. You should not deny yourself. That's weird. That's gross. But Jesus, his way, the true way, the good life, he answers both of those problems by saying, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, while at the same time saying, you can't be made unsalty. Don't worry, this doesn't depend on you. Don't freak out. It's not just because you're the most disciplined that I love you the most. And where does he do that? He does that on the cross. On the cross, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this is my challenge for us today. And I say this, and I know it's hard, because we're all Christians, and we've been around this stuff for a while. You know, am I taking the words of Christ seriously about what it means to be a disciple? And I believe with all my heart, when we don't obey Christ, when we choose to hold back something that he wants us to sacrifice, when we decide that we're not going to be totally committed, that it hurts us, that it keeps us from the good life. It really does. It keeps us from the good life that we want so badly. We all do, and it's because we're made for it. But we're made for it in Christ. So that's my challenge for us today. In your own thoughts, in your mind, what is it that might be holding you back from the good life? What is it? Is it something that you've just told God, you know, anything but that? You know, I'll do what you want, but just not that thing. It's keeping you back. It's holding you back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for your ways and your life. I'm so grateful for how you're at work. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would please speak to us more about your ways and your truth. I pray that you would help us all here to enter into that life, that you would help us all to think about what that means uh, for us individually. 